Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. What's up? What is up? Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Today I'm joined from Chicago by... Josh Modell. What's up, Elio? Hey, hey, man. I have been very, very excited about this show, Josh. We are celebrating on its 20th anniversary, the one, the only, 69 Love Songs. Very exciting. And I think Stephen Merritt's level of excitement in this podcast is higher than it usually is for him, but still much less than yours. (laughs) I have never heard him so relatively giddy. Listeners, as you may have surmised, today's conversation features Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields talking all about 69 Love Songs with another very special guest, Daniel Handler, a.k.a. Lemony Snicket. Maybe you know him as a world-famous author. Of course, a series of unfortunate events was an incredible series and an incredibly popular series. What you may not know is Daniel actually played accordion all over 69 Love Songs and also interviewed Stephen for the liner notes. Yeah, it's amazing. We got the perfect pair for this episode. And their rapport is fantastic. Now, 69 Love Songs is a three-CD collection released at the tail end of 1999. It's a meta-conceit. This is a record not only full of love songs, but also about love songs themselves. Running at 172 minutes and 35 seconds, literally 69 songs long, The album stylistically jumps between indie rock, synth pop, country, faux punk, and jazz, Sondheim-esque show tunes, folk, acapella, world music, 70s singer-songwriter, and I'd tell you more, but I'm running out of breath. (laughs) You might say that it's a little bit ambitious, this record. It really is. As with every Stephen Merritt project, the lyrics are brilliantly dark and witty, often gender-bending, certainly super smart, heartbreaking, kind of everything you would want in a great pop song delivered 69 times. (laughs) 69 Love Songs is clearly the most well-known Magnetic Fields record, both for its breadth and depth, and it really sort of caught people's eye and ear, including Peter Gabriel, right? Yeah, Peter Gabriel famously covered The Book of Love, which is definitely one of the most popular tracks on the record. I'll admit, Josh, there was a reading of it at my wedding. Let's take a moment and play a clip of the original 69 Love Songs version of The Book of Love. That's Stephen singing. The book of love has music in it. In fact, that's where music comes from. Some of it is just transcendental. Some of it is just really dumb. But I, I love it when you sing. I mean, it's just gorgeous stuff, right? Incredible. And I know we're using a lot of hyperbole here, but it's so well-deserved. This record is, for me, Josh, the Desert Island pick. Now, I would say there's albums that are as good as this, maybe by The Smiths, maybe by Bell and Sebastian, but there is no album as good as this and as long as this. Yeah, you're really cheating. Three discs is not a Desert Island (laughs) so you are hereby disqualified from living on a Desert Island. Desert Island. (laughs) Well, a little bit about Stephen Merritt. As I mentioned, he's one of my all-time favorite songwriters. Stephen's the guy behind the magnetic fields, as well as the electropop future Bible heroes, the bubblegum goth, the gothic Archies, and the collaborations project, The Sixths. He's highly influenced by musicals, by synth pop, by 60s psych rock, and a lot more. This is a guy who is a true music nerd in the absolute best way. Yeah, I think he references... Stereolab and The Residents and New Order. Like, he's a goddamn know-it-all. He is, he is. And, and those are the mainstream bands he's mentioning. <laughs> yeah. Right. Steven's last record was 50 Song Memoir. That was with the Magnetic Fields, where he wrote a song for every year of the first 50 years of his life. It was an incredible record that toured around the world. I got to see different parts of it performed in New York and Chicago. Really powerful stuff. The only problem with that one is it was about 19 songs too short. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Daniel Handler played on 50 Song Memoir just as he's played on so many records over the last couple decades that Stevens worked on. 
The two collaborated on the Gothic Archies record, The Tragic Treasury. That consists of songs based on Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events, and was used in the audiobook version to coincide with the 13th and last book in Snicket's series. Yeah, so Daniel Handler is best known as a novelist, even though we know him as the accordion player for the magnetic fields. I thought the most amazing anecdote in this conversation is that they were friends and they kind of sat down and told each other, hey, I'm about to start this ambitious project. One turned out to be 69 Love Songs. The other turned out to be this incredibly popular children's book series, which has then become a movie and a Netflix series a couple of years ago, to which Handler actually contributed some songwriting even. It really is amazing. I mean, who writes a 13-book series? Who writes a 69-song record? Uh, The two guys that are on our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) The two guys that are on our show today. What a dink! Most recently, Daniel and Steven, along with violinist Pinky Weitzman, played a live score for Todd Browning's 1925 silent film, The Unholy Three, here at the Venerable Town Hall on Broadway. Our producer Mark and I went along with some friends, and I have to say it was an absolutely incredible evening. Hopefully they'll record that soundtrack. It was actually during rehearsals for this event that the guys joined us here at Hook and Fade Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn for today's deep dive conversation. So Josh, this talk covers so many different facets of 69 Love Songs and the scene that surrounded it. We hear all about the disparate musical categories that the music press has tried to put it into. Yeah, and I love Handler's theory that 69 Love Songs has slowly become a children's album over the past 20 years. (laughs) Along that line, we hear about the band's baby pictures that were stolen by a mega fan. Tweecore beefs with Bell and Sebastian and Stereolab, which is hilarious. That's got to be vegan beef. That's got to be vegan beef. Oh, yeah, of course. Vegan beef. (laughs) They talk about the album release show that found Steven trapped above the stage. The best music to get busy to and why 69 Love Songs should have been sold in sex shops. And much, much more. They kick things off remembering St. Divna's, the recently shuttered Irish pub and restaurant on St. Mark's in the village where they met and went on to record the interviews for the sleeve notes for both 69 Love Songs and 50 Song Memoir. Should we roll a tape? Yeah, let's hear it. So, Mr. Barrett, I first met you at St. Divna's Diner. I don't know if I would call it a diner, Daniel Handler. Uh, more of an Irish pub, I think. A late, lamented Irish pub. Um, well, Connor, I think we Oberst have different and opinions I are, 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 are uh, lamenting it just we now. We sat down and had a short meal, and I thought to myself, well, this is just some place we met. Surely we won't return here to this horrible <laughs> Irish place. And then we were there daily for... 19 years well, it and was I ordered every single thing horrible Irish could. place to my <laughs> uh, squalid East Village hovel yeah so you would write songs there all day long with pots of tea yes when I could uh, drink my tea black but when I first met you um, we had talked about working together on something and then we had both had separate ideas you had had an idea to do an album, Six and I Love Songs, and I had an idea to write 13 children's books about terrible things happening to orphans. And we basically said to each other, we'll just do these little things that we've thought of, and then we'll work on this project together. And yes. 35 years later, no, 20 years later... Um, we, should have, we should have combined <laughs> the two. bigger ideas than we thought, I think. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. If we had combined the two... Uh, it would all be one obscure morass. Yeah. A fatberg. So for many days, I would meet you at St. Diffna's and you would have your morning tea, morning being about 1 p.m. Yes. And then we would go to your uh, studio apartment, studio slash studio apartment, and you would work on 69 Love Songs. And even when I wasn't playing on it, it was for me an adventure to sit in the tiny available space in your studio apartment and watch this album come together. So in my in my visual recollection of my tiny squalid studio apartment slash studio, I don't remember there being anywhere to sit down. I don't actually was your remember. Bed. The bed, that was it. And then there was one stool where one might be sitting while one was recording something and seated. Ah. Such as playing a guitar or a sure. xylophone yeah. where you don't want to be standing up. Right. 
Um, but mostly I sat on your bed and watched you work on songs there. It was, mm. I mean, one of the things that I like about it is that I was there for a lot more of the recording on 16 I Love Songs than one might offhand assume because my contribution to it is relatively small, but I just liked going over there and watching you make it. It's not so much that your contribution is small, is that it's focused on a small number of tracks. You actually played every instrument on more than one track on the record, such that it is partly your solo album. <laughs> well, um, for um, years afterwards, which I mean, as your the first Snicket book started to take off, sometimes people would say, and now tell me more about your band. And I would have to say, my band consists of one man who writes all of the songs, plays 95% of the instruments, and produces, records, and mixes the album himself. <laughs> I love this part of my band. Do you still listen to the record? No. Um, I haven't recently, no. Do you hear it ever at yes, random? That's, that's why I don't listen to it uh, deliberately, is because I actually do hear it involuntarily. Uh, Under what circumstances do you hear Cafes. It? Okay. Hipster cafes. Hipster meaning people under 50. I understand. Yes. One thing that happened over the years since the album came out for me is that it turned out to be a children's album. Um, a bunch you of us had children. Say. And, um, and then also, I think just the entire experience of anyone who was at the knitting factory in 1999, many of them have children, or started having children in the years to follow. And the funny lyrics and the ear-popping sound, I think, makes it a very accessible children's record. The songs are short for the most part. They can be repetitive. They have fun noises on them. And so if you are a small child and you have a short attention span, you can listen to 69 Love Songs with unending delight. And I know that for my, for my own son and for many other people's children, that what seemed like a um, an album for grown-ups as we actually became grown-ups and have children turned out to be an album for children. So you're saying it's Twee-Core. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell me the number of genre categories they've attempted to put this record into? Oh, my God. So many. <laughs> Yes, uh, German journalists swear that it is lo-fi, despite its all-digital recording uh, technology. Right. It's DDD uh, workflow. Um, we were briefly categorized as electroclash when that movement seemed like a movement. Right. Um, which I, I don't hear that phrase anymore. There was... Indie pop, which was always a problem for me and for Claudia, because when we were coming up, indie pop meant Indian popular music or Indian influence, such as the Immortal Monsoon album. Sure. Um, then there was indie rock, which as far as I can tell is exactly the same thing as college rock or new rock or the various things that came after new wave. I wish the microphones were picking up the disdainful frown with which you, <laughs> which would you name all these genres of music. I'm fairly sure that the audience can hear the sneer with which I'm <laughs> derogating these alleged genre markers. Um, I could go on and on, but I think I won't. I mean, if I had a gun to my head and was asked to say what the genre of 69 Love Songs was, it would certainly be variety show. It changes genre um, pointedly every two minutes and 15 seconds. It's therefore a variety show. It felt like a variety show when we first played it at the Knitting Factory. Yes, because we had to change instruments every single song. Yeah, yes. and we were on a tiny stage... And was that when Claudia nearly decapitated someone by playing the piano? Yes. Who was it that was nearly decapitated? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh. I remember that you stood up on a stool and were singing uh, The Night You Can't Remember, and I was playing accordion, and when you reached the end of the song, you, full of cognac and triumph, could not get off the stool, <laughs> and you had to lie across me like a sleeping child <laughs> brought home to oh, get off the, uh, yeah. the stool. 
Yes, a, a non-union hall. <laughs> In well, a union hall, burly men would have rushed out to get me off the stool before I sued them. What I mostly remember about that, which was a very happy and joyous memory for me playing those shows, is that it, that felt like the triumph after so long of you <laughs> recording that record. Yes, right. It was finally done, and we were finally playing it for four sold-out nights at the Knitting Factory, and I, it just felt like it was over. It, that was a, a wonderful album and experience. And then suddenly, years later, we were playing it in larger and larger uh, houses, and its stature went from being a kind of quirky thing that Time Out New York was telling you to go here to... Uh, uh, it's Always with the caveat that there was a conflict of interest since I was working there. <laughs> <laughs> to the kind of uh, iconic status that it has now. Or until recently. <laughs> Last time we checked. Last time we checked. Yes. Uh, so yesterday on the way down from Hudson in the car, so packed I couldn't change the CD running in the uh, CD player yep. that I insist be in my car. Um I was listening to the Residence album Fingerprints, which being from San Francisco, you know by heart. Yes. And um, I noticed that on the back of the CD reissue, it has an admiring blurb from someone or other calling the Residence the underground cult band of the decade. I don't know whether the decade meant the 70s or 80s. I think 80s. 1980, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So... I was wondering if the magnetic fields were the underground cult band of the 90s. Um, you're staring at me like this is something I should know. I don't know. I mean, uh, the first I heard your music before I met you is I was living in San Francisco and I bought at Streetlight Records a copy of Wasp's Nests by the Sixths. Because of it, what? <laughs> <laughs> by your band The Sixths, which you named because it's the hardest thing to say into a microphone, and your debut album, Wasp's Nests, which is not easier to say into a microphone. And I bought it because Robert Scott sung on it. And I was then, as now, a big fan of The Clean and The Bats. And um, I think that was one of the few names that was familiar to me on that record, even though what it was then was a, was a parade of popular indie rock vocalists of the time. But it was a funny way to get into your music because it was a million people singing and you singing once. And then it had a the kind of corny sentence that was on a, a bunch of your early Magnetic Fields records. Which, if you like this, you'll like records by, and then it was all of your other projects. Um, yes, I, I think I'm going to reinstate that corny sentence because now... Um, People find it so exhausting to use Google that they just prefer not to know anything. <laughs> so they don't have to. Right. Well, press this is the CD era. And buttons. so you could lie on your sofa listening to something and holding the little booklet in your hand and um, uh, read along with your um, clever mumbled lyrics. Oh, yes. Mumbled by other people yeah. in this case. Yes. But the only reason I bring it up is that I think one of the remarkable things about 69 Love Songs is that you have other vocalists on it. Other vocalists who in this case had had not been heard before on Magnetic Fields Records and who were new to I would say just about everyone in the world of indie rock. I'm referring uh, to Dudley Clute and L.D. Bagdell. Yes. Um, and Shirley Sims at the time was not famous yet. Right. And um, I should have done that with 50 Song Memoir, but I couldn't really figure out who to have sing what. Do you remember what, uh, how you chose who sang what on 69 Love Songs? Uh, no, I do not. It's 20 years ago. I have zero memory of, <laughs> of anything like that. <laughs> Sorry, no. No, it's okay. It's, you know, a zero memory nostalgic podcast is I think what everyone was hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> Next Feel up, Mr. Merritt's recollections of the Revolutionary War. <laughs> Do songs from 69 Love Songs pop into your head? 
Um, yes, of course. Which one? Um, is the- some of the some of the songs on Sixty Nine Love Songs are there because they had been popping into my head for decades, like Roses. which has been in my head involuntarily, often for hours at a time, even though it's only 15 seconds long. I am blessed and cursed with a head that is more or less continuously filled with music, often by other people, often from advertisements. And this has not changed as I have ripened. Um, do you is have, there a, a do you song have you more think or less most? always a, a song in your head? Yes. Well, I mean, the first thing I need to do in the morning is to put music on. Otherwise, the music in my head gets expressed out loud to the displeasure of my wife and son. Yes. If I had a wife and son, I might have a similar problem. Yeah. Is there a song from Six and I Love Songs that pops the most into your head? Probably Roses. The most because it's only 15 seconds long and it will can go on for hours. So. <laughs> and is there a song you regret on 69 Love Songs? Um, Would yeah. you like to look at a yes, list? I, I, uh, <laughs> yes, there's a song that I regret, but I, of course, won't say what it is because I oh, okay. don't want to spoil anyone else's experience of it. When you think about the production and the recording of it... And there's only there a, one. Okay. Is there a song in the production and recording that you feel pride about? Sure, experimental music love. Mm. No one knows how that was made. No. And I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> when we first performed it at the Knitting Factory, you had us do this weird, we tried to perform it. So we all spoke. In Round Robin. In Round Robin, and it was uh, not widely appreciated by the audience, even an audience that was widely appreciating the whole shebang. Uh-huh. And then after that, it was pretty much a lip sunk. Yes, I think we just played the tape. Yeah. yeah. In the modern version of the 69 Love Songs show, circa 2002. I think the decision was, whatever we did that time at the Knitting Factory, let's never do that again. What else can we do? Yes. <laughs> um, we could just flash the title on the screen, I suppose. But that would require a projection equipment. A and I'm not sure it counts as a song. <laughs> Why not? I don't know. Don't don't go here. No one likes that. No one likes the philosophical spiraling. What is music? <laughs> oh. Does music necessarily entail sound? <laughs> would Duran you Duran would, be even the or, end of Would Duran Duran be any less of a pop band if their only output was covers of four minutes and thirty three seconds? Yes, they would be. <laughs> What else? I was going to ask you what your favorite song is. 69 Love Songs disagrees with you. I was going to ask you what your favorite song is on 69 Love Songs, but you've announced uh, that you no longer believe in favorites. Um, I I never did believe in favorites, but the favorites have really gotten on my tits recently. Um, I think it's a social media thing or whatever it's called. Which is funny because one of the opening bands at Knitting Factory was my favorite. You also had Kiki and Herb open for you. Yes, once and only once. They upstaged us so badly that we decided that they could never open for us again. We recently had had the same problem uh, with our background vocalist, Randy Walker, who is so much better than we are live that he is enjoined from opening for us ever again. (laughs) You had Margaret Ling Tan open for you. We had, as we tootled around playing 69 Love Songs, a number of opening acts that I think were unusual at the time. One of whom I believe was Kelly Link, and there was a woman standing directly in front of Kelly Link as she tried to read her brilliant short story, who was whispering where only Kelly could hear things that I probably can't say on this podcast. Things like, fuck you, we hate you, you ugly bitch. Fuck you, get off the fucking stage. Yeah. 
I opened for you a few times reading from my prose and um did you have the same person, the same uh, not the same person, heckler? but often the same hostility. Really, and I did actually think it was um, therapeutic for me because oh, those, were, those were some of my first readings from my first published novel. And after that, when I would go on book tour, and there would be some dismal bookstore event where five people would show up, people would say, "That must be really hard for you." And I would say, "No, not really." <laughs> In Los Angeles, I thought they were going to kill me if I didn't bring the magnetic fields out. <laughs> yeah, we have a hard crowd. <laughs> well, they were. They have nunchucks. They weren't a hard crowd crossbows. per se, but they were very eager to hear the magnetic fields and were not particularly overjoyed to say, "No, wait a minute, someone you've never heard of will now be reading from their novel." Hmm. Except that it was your band, so <laughs> you should explain. But you that had first. a you had a a fan base that was. Um, rabid in its own way and that was the first time I'd been around anything like that I remember that people knew vaguely where you lived and so more than <laughs> once I was um, accosted as I was walking to your studio by people who wanted me to take them to see you Really, Sam, your cellist Thank your you long time cellist had a them. photograph of his uh, new, then newly born child that someone took out of his cello case. Um, out of his cello case and ran across the Great American Music Hall and I had to pursue him. And then when I caught him, I had to say, uh, um, could you give that back to me, please? Because I couldn't think of what I could say. If you already thought it was okay to steal someone's baby photo, what admonishment could you offer them? Like, hey, that's not your baby. <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. <laughs> what could they possibly want with Sam's baby photo? I don't know. Maybe they thought it was of Sam. I think there was so much music that was very aggressive and um, mm. proud of itself for being simplistic, and you were proud of being complicated and literate, and I think that it, that meant a whole lot to people. If you look at the 1999 Paz and Drop poll, and who was in that? It's kind of horrifying what what the critics were willing to put up with and say that they liked in 1999. It was really a low point um, that uh, everything has, all those genres have either disappeared or gotten a lot more interesting again. Um, you want to give some examples? And start? Hip-hop is a lot more interesting now than it was in 1999 when it was dominated by stupid uh, songs about uh, either female empowerment or uh, killing law enforcement officers. Um, I Those seem to be the only were, two topics. You were on the cover of The Village Voice in a, an astronaut costume. Yes. And... They couldn't get Queen Latifah to do it. <laughs> no, you were the number two choice that year, and number one was Moby, but I remember that everyone in New York loved your record so much that you had to be on the cover instead of Moby. I think Moby just wasn't available, but yeah. <laughs> or not willing to get into an astronaut costume. <laughs> <laughs> or didn't have a chihuahua. Um, and I, I, there was, maybe it was Spin Magazine, I can't remember what it was, but you were on some list, and I remember to celebrate we were all at a bar, and that you were on the list right under Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> Which just seemed <laughs> like a very funny moment to me. And we were all lifting our glasses of cognac like, so the best record in the world, of course, it's not as good as Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> Everybody knows that. But it's really good. <laughs> Does Rage Against the Machine still... Still rage? I guess. Still. <laughs> I don't know. It... What else can you tell me? That was your first ukulele-dominated record. Was it? I think it would get lost as ukulele dominated now that the correct running order begins with with whom to dance. Um, so for me, 69 Love Songs is the uh, follow-up ukulele album to Get Lost. Okay. But um, I, I can see how since Get Lost only has one ukulele-only song, 
that it doesn't project itself as a ukulele album as much as Six Million Love Songs, which has several ukulele-only songs. Yes. Different kinds of ukulele, baritone ukulele. The Book of Love is on a baritone ukulele. Um, you had the pineapple ukulele as well, which was made from a pineapple. Um, made for a pineapple, I think. <laughs> For a pineapple, <laughs> it's so easy. Even a pineapple can play it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there was also uh, there's oodles of electronics and synthesizers on '69 Love Songs. Oh yes, but then you swore off them for a long time. Well, nothing new was happening in the synthesizer world or in the electronics world. It became the era of the Sherman filter bank, where. Uh, the only thing that would change in the entire 10-minute techno track was what the filter was doing. So that was a real low point before the modular synthesizer era uh, brought us back into electronic uh, creativity and the revival of Buchla. Um, we, have, we have now entered the second era of the Buchla Music Easel. Did you feel self-conscious making records after 69 Love Songs, knowing that um, inevitably they would be compared unfavorably, at least for many years? I knew from the moment that I decided to do 69 Love Songs that it was going to be my calling card, and that was the whole point. So I remain perfectly fine about everyone thinking of 69 Love Songs as my permanent masterpiece that will never be bettered. As long as they think it's a masterpiece, it's fine. <laughs> I think I've been to five weddings where Book of Love has been performed. How many weddings have you been to where Book of Love has been performed? Three, and I was the one performing them. It, okay. I only performed it once. The other times I just had to sit and listen to it. Uh, um, so who else performed it? Other people at the wedding. Although when we were in London, you may remember that the encore of playing 69 Love Songs was Peter Gabriel coming out and singing Book of Love. And I remember that was really great in front of the London audience because he was not recognized physically and then not his voice was only gradually recognized as he sang first in the low register and then jumped up to the unmistakable <laughs> Peter Gabriel <laughs> register and watching the audience say, who's that guy? You know how it sounds a little bit like? Oh my God, it is. It was really fun. Sometimes people ask me what I do for a living. And I say, I'm a songwriter. Oh yeah, anything I've ever heard of. Uh, 69 Love Songs. Uh, try anything else. The Book of Love. You mean the Peter Gabriel song? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. Yes. Peter Gabriel's finest songwriter, Stephen Merritt. <laughs> there were cover versions of songs on 69 Love Songs almost instantaneously. That's what I remember. There was a cover of Papa Was a Rodeo by uh, Kelly Hogan. And there were a few covers I that believe Kelly Hogan's right away. Ver cover of Papa Was a Rodeo came out technically before 69 Love Songs came out. I don't remember how this worked, but I think she heard it from a live tape. And her version came out in some way um, before 69 Love Songs was actually available. Although with this staggered entry to the market of 69 Love Songs, it's kind of hard to say what the actual release date was because well, we, we could were talk sold a little out bit about before that. the record came out. It was such a complicated uh, project for Merge Records, which was, I think, another aspect of the winsome charm of 69 Love Songs was that the small cottage industry of the magnetic fields met the small cottage industry of Merge Records, and both of you were completely overwhelmed by the size of the project. <laughs> yes. Um, we had, uh, at first, a limited release, but um, it was so limited that we couldn't actually satisfy the demand for it even before the record came out. And then we couldn't get any more of them made for a few months. So it was basically never in stores for a few months of its existence. What did your mother think of the record? Um, 
There are two times that my mother has said, uh, why do you like shooting yourself in the foot? Uh, one of them is 69 Love Songs, and the other is Distortion. Um, 69 Love Songs is my most popular record, and Distortion is my highest charting record. So, uh, clearly, annoying my mother is the best commercial strategy. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure that's an inspiring lesson for all of those young musicians listening to the podcast. Remember, annoying, annoying your mother. Stephen's mother. <laughs> What record was very important to you, do you think, in the way that Six and I Love Songs has been important to so many people? Judy Collins' In My Life, the eclecticism of her approach where no two songs are in the same genre at all on In My Life was uh, directly uh, inspirational for Six and I Love Songs and for my approach in general. And what age were you when you discovered that record? Two. <laughs> my mother had it before I probably before I was well can't be before I was born because it came out in sixty six I believe and I was born in sixty five but it it is one of the first records I heard and uh, I've found it so much better than those terrible Bob Dylan records where he just sang and played guitar again and again on every goddamn track. Was there an album that you discovered in your 20s? This is before I knew about Blonde on Blonde, in which he basically does what she did in, in my <laughs> life. Only two, two discs. Um, was there a record you Not found Blonde in your Blonde. 20s? Self-portrait. Self <laughs> Sorry. Was there a record I found in my 20s? Are you, was there a record you, you found in your 20s? Because I can't remember what you're... No, no I just... No. I guess I want to know. I I think of Six and I Love Songs when it was released, certainly that it was hitting people in their 20s the hardest. They were the people most marveling at it, certainly at the beginning. And I was wondering if there was a record when you were that age that meant a lot to you. My 20s. Um, my 20s is when I was discovering theater music and film music. So I guess the Forbidden Planet soundtrack... It was a major staple of my 20s. It came out in 59 or 60, and it sounded like nothing else. And it still sounds like nothing else, except you can't do that anymore. You can't sound like nothing else. Uh, I guess it's the technology has changed, and the moment has passed. Uh, but now all you can do is try to sound different every few minutes. How sad. <laughs> <laughs> was there a, an album that you discovered in your 20s that you uh, felt? I think the 20s is a little is a difficult period where you've already decided what you like, other than Stereolab. I mean, I discovered Stereolab in my 20s, but I happened to already like everything that Stereolab already liked. So right. <laughs> uh, Stereolab did not surprise me, except that they used the, they mixed up mixed the Farfises so loud. I mean, Stereolab for me is one of the bands that you were in the same breath as, right? That was I mean that was part or I of wanted a, to be yeah. Well, but I mean that yeah. was part of a little scene that was happening around the sound of Six and Nine Love songs. Well, they hated think. us. I, I love them, but they <laughs> why not they hated start us. a feud? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I I I wanted Letitia Sadier. Um, the immortal Letitia said, yay, to appear on the second six album. And she said, oh, no, uh, the, I heard that first album was too rock, too rock. <laughs> Not a complaint you guys get a lot. Well, the first album is kind of rock. I also There's, feel like... There are actual electric guitars on it and everything. <laughs> I feel like there was a um, Magnetic Fields Bell and Sebastian uh, kind of showdown that was happening then, too. Do you want to right. say anything about that? So in the other music documentary, it is revealed that If You're Feeling Sinister was the best-selling record of, in the history of other music, and 69 Love Songs is a few down from there. So I, I guess Bill and Sebastian won the, <laughs> uh, 
kaiju toss up <laughs> smackdown <laughs> okay <laughs> so they're the bellens <laughs> bell and sebastian are the rage against the machine of <laughs> yes <laughs> of that particular contest um What's the one that isn't Spotify? Pandora. Uh, now and then I go to cafes where I have to endure Pandora and its idea of what a channel is based on the magnetic fields. So a magnetic fields channel means the magnetic fields, Bell and Sebastian, and New Order. You could do worse. Period. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I've... I think New Order is a fair comparison. They're they're a, a, a rock group pretending to be an electropop group, and that would be a fair criticism of the Magnetic Fields if it were a criticism at all. I don't understand the Bell and Sebastian comparison. Um, maybe it's the voices or something. I don't know. I think of Bell and Sebastian as sounding like Al Stewart but less folky. I mean, we we played together once in Barcelona at a festival. They were perfectly nice. We liked them. Um, but we've never met again. Whereas I did actually meet Bernard Sumner at Peter Gabriel's studio, and he clearly had no idea who I was. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, wa I, I wanted to mention uh, Chick Factor, too, because it seems that the Chick Factor music magazine, uh, founded by Gail O'Hara, a uh, pal of yours, was instrumental in bringing so much previously unknown music to um, new American listeners. And she was an early champion of your work as well. I remember something about the triumph of indie pop that seemed visible when 69 Love Songs came out that felt like a triumph of Chick Factor too. I was wanting to know how many uh, copies of Chick Factor were printed so I could get some idea of the scale of the phenomenon and no one would ever tell me, which was perfect, really. Uh, as though the number of people in the scene had nothing to do with how one would evaluate that scene. For example, grunge really was exactly 20 people who lived in Seattle and Olympia, Washington, <laughs> who had a label applied to them that they didn't rage against. <laughs> so we still somehow call it grunge. Am I wandering off topic? <laughs> I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 69 love songs uh, what is it it's sort of the 20th anniversary it, it's it's the 20th anniversary of the theoretical release of, of 69 love songs but since almost everyone in the world who had it when it came out really had it in early 2000 you're going to keep talking for a year <laughs> 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 I remember it felt to me that it was the last great record of the 20th century. And that was a, that was a nice feeling. Um, to be part of something that put the cap on 100 years of pop music. Sure, if you... While quoting 100 years of pop music. Yeah. Uh, if you thought it was a great record, then it was probably also the last great record of the 20th century. Sure. <laughs> um, although... The way it came out, maybe it's the first great record of the new millennium. Aha. Uh -huh. I or say, both. throwing my arm in the air. Yeah, it was a very dramatic gesture. Reattaching it and <laughs> going on. Do you think um, that Six and I Love Songs has made it impossible for you to have a greatest hits compilation ever? Uh, yes. It will always be impossible for me to have a greatest hits compilation. Also, I have never had any hits. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> that's true. Uh, that, you know that cover of Wheels on the Bus that was on a popular uh, car commercial. Right. Well, anything on, anything on TV is more exposure than 
anything on a record at this point. So uh, my my greatest hits are all commercials. Uh, my chewing gum commercial is uh, a high point. Ah, I would agree. Um, Thank uh, speaking you. of um, visibility and fame, was there any surreal moment of becoming the famous with 69 Love Songs? I mean, you went from playing very small venues and being uh, well-respected, but um, certainly low visibility on American pop scene to be a certain kind of high visibility. Um, I first thought maybe I was famous in some way when I saw my name in the art section of the New York Times with no explanation of who I was. Ooh. Um, you know, it sounds a bit like Stephen Merritt, a bit like Dolly Parton, something like that. I remember you were made fun of in The Onion. That seemed like a big moment for me. I don't remember that. Yeah. But then I don't remember much. <laughs> uh, I wonder if I can Google that or if it's lost to time. Um, I don't know. It was some. It was a, uh, a satirical story, obviously, about a, somebody who worked at a record store, but it had a you know, kind of snide... Stephen Merritt slap, and I remember thinking, uh -huh. "Oh, that's look at him." Was you know it, that guy? Was it above the fold? <laughs> it was when the Onion was still on paper. Uh -huh. And speaking of, I guess, of physicality and albums, for me, Six and I Love Songs was the first record that people might buy as they were stopping buying records. There was something about its. Giftiness. concept and its physical form that was so appealing that as people were starting not to buy a physical object as an album, they would buy that anyway. Yes. I think we should have distributed it in sex shops. Uh, just, Always with the smart marketing ideas, Mr. Merritt. <laughs> well, I, I, th I think it would have been a good idea. Um, you know, it's, it's got the 69 on the cover. It's an uh, excellent gift uh, for someone you wish to be um, seeing a great deal more of. Um, so you would go to a, a sex shop less. and buy some kind of erotic item and also the album that might get the person in the mood? That's a complicated package. Exactly. <laughs> Here, a gift. And three hours from now, we'll be using the second gift. <laughs> as soon as the last chord of Zebra has faded into the background, you'll just get, roll into bed with me. But there's one thing I need If you won't think I'm greedy, my dear Another zebra Zelda looks lonely I want a zebra Well, I was thinking uh, <laughs> Perhaps it could be the new Barry White Where you, you are expected to be Um Reproducing or, or yeah, no, whatever. I think Fido, your leash is too long. It's definitely the next Barry White. You were, uh -huh. <laughs> I can think of nothing more erotic. <laughs> uh, I have been hearing Barry White recently quite a bit more in my places I hang out, and uh, Barry White's voice, while admittedly low and sexy, has a preposterous quality that one might find a little counter. Sexual, if asked to reproduce to it now. With all due respect, you're a man who finds the Forbidden Planet soundtrack to be erotic, and so <laughs> I think your opinion means nothing in this field. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you're the last person I would ask about make-out records. <laughs> well, Avalon is kind of short. <laughs> so are you. Yes. <laughs> Songs in the Key of Life is uh, an irregular number of records, complicating things because you have to suddenly get up and put on Saturn. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess for the the younger generations, uh, Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder came out on two 12-inch discs and one 7-inch disc. And in order to hear the entire album, you had to stand up and get back down again. One, two, three, four. 
at least five times. <laughs> right. Hardly, on- <laughs> hardly worth it. Uh, I mean, as a makeout record. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well worth it as a listening experience. Sure. Uh, and I'm sure on MP3, you, you can just listen to the whole thing in a row. MP4? What, what are we on now? <laughs> you're, you're engineers. I think you're on you're green tea. That's yes. what I think you're on now. Um, this may be the conclusion of our conversation about 69 Love Songs. Ending, I'm out of things of course, to ask you. And if I don't ask you anything, you don't life. say anything. <laughs> well, that's true in general. Yes. yes, yes. Uh, all right. Well, um, for thanks example, for stopping by St. Dymphus. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> Stephen, Daniel, thank you so much for stopping by St. Dymphna's, or in this case, Hook and Fade Studios here in Bushwick to share these amazing memories. Also, Josh, I think Stephen fell in love with the ARP 2600 here on the synth wall, so watch out, Hook and Fade. It might go missing soon. If you enjoyed this conversation or the magnetic fields in general, we've got a great piece on TalkHouse.com from Claudia Gonson of the Magnetic Fields about her role as the band's manager over the years. It's really fascinating stuff. I really love that piece. She's she's living a dual life in the magnetic fields. I'd also recommend our producer, Mark Yoshizumi, and I worked on a fantastic talk through Pitchfork. It was the Inside Out series at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. There's a great episode with Stephen Merritt in conversation with Pitchfork's Mark Hogan. That is some recommended listening if you enjoyed today's episode. We got some great pictures of Daniel and Stephen in conversation and checking out the synth wall. You can check out TalkHouse's socials for those at TalkHouse pretty much across platforms. This episode was co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi with additional engineering by you, Josh Modell. What? Me? The Takas theme song was written and performed by The Range. Until next week, I'm Ellie Einhorn, and I'm absolutely cuckoo. And I'm Josh Modell, and I'm sorry I love you. I love you, too. Oh. Peace. Peace.